Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Final Edition Radio Hour is a work of satire intended for people who own books, gentrify neighborhoods, and say they like kale. Please consume responsibly the satire, that is. Hi, I'm Jeff Chrysler. And I'm Tony Hendra. And this is the Final Edition Radio Hour. Yep, it is. Oh, what's wrong, Tony? No, nothing, nothing. The GOP debate got you down? Look, I totally understand. It was a... No, 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 no. No, no, not that. Not that. Got the post-holiday blues? I mean, yeah, no presents, no family. No, no, nothing like that. Nothing like that. What? What is it? I'm suffering from David Bowie tribute fatigue. I mean, the guy was wildly talented, original, funny, very important, that. Not everyone knows it. And loathsomely good-looking. I mean, an angelic semi-she-male with an amazing instrument in his neck and a nice, earthy East London accent. You know, Michael Caine's kid brother. Yeah, and he did that, that one song and the other one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a riveting artist. Even if he did hanker a bit after Haggy Thatcher, the Witch of Hades. And he certainly was a past master of the gender fender bender. So? Well, since he fell from Earth last Sunday, everyone is fawning over him. I mean, everyone, from the Wall Street Journal to Daily Cost to the New Yorker to HuffPo to The Economist and probably Breitbart News and The American Rifleman. Every once-drug-addled male groupie has a piece about how Ziggy Stardust or Colonel Tom or Aladdin Sane or Spandau Ballet changed his life utterly, completely, irrevocably. Well, he was influential. I mean, he had that one song and the other one. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but if he really influenced all these fans... Shouldn't the mainstream media be thinner and better dressed? Tony. And not such incredible wankers? So you're down because there have been a lot of tributes, but not a lot of real change. Oh, I don't know, Jeff. You know, I think you're just worried about your own British-ish cultural legacy, aren't you? (sighs) Well, rest easy, my friend. Your legacy is secured. It is? What is my legacy? Tony. Final edition... Radio Hour. The final edition Radio Hour? Oh, fuck. Nice. Powerball Lottery wants to know, what would you do with a billion dollars? I'd buy an army and kill everybody. I'd finally get that abortion. I'd move my favorite football team back to Los Angeles. I'd kill Nicole Brown Simpson all over again. I'd sew a cat's head onto a dog. I'd have a second cup of coffee. Harry never has a second cup of coffee at home. I'd bring Hitler back to life. I'd buy an island in Tahiti and have it gold-plated. I'd probably break under the strain. Powerball. A dollar and a dream. From the network that brought you Game of Thrones and Sex in the City comes the newly revamped favorite, Sesame Street. That's right, kids. The show that taught us the ABCs is gearing up for a lesson on STDs. This season we'll watch as Bert tells Ernie about the importance of using protection. C is for condom. And E is for erection. Put one thing on the other. Your blood will be perfection. And while Bert and Ernie are busy being safe in the bedroom... Hold that right there. Call me mommy. Winter is coming for the rest of Sesame Street. And Elmo, known as the Red Bitch, is planning to rule the entire Sesame Kingdom. 
To teach children is to burn them at the stake. That's right. S is, is for sacrifice and, 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 and also for statutory rape. Your discretion advised. This is This, the program about this. And today we're interviewing a member of Black Lives Matter, Terry Stetson. Uh, Terry, you've stopped traffic. Uh, you've blocked stores during Christmas. What's the strategy behind that? Well, we know a lot of people think that they think that Black Lives Matter, but they really don't think Black Lives Matter. Uh, so what's next for the group? We need to raise uh, public support. So we're going to block traffic on the interstate during morning rush hour then block hospital entrances right around autumn when people are having babies. Well, that should gain you some sympathy. We think so. We're also looking for uh, political candidates who agree with our positions so we can take out ads against them. Have you ever considered protesting against people who disagree with you? Republican candidates, for example. You're kidding, right? This is scary. This is true. I mean, seriously, they have guns. Uh, Joining us on the phone is Sheriff Ron Vanderborg from Laramie County, Arizona. Uh, Sheriff Vanderborg. Virtually every complaint against your police department has been against one officer. Uh, this man showed up in a viral video shooting a three-year-old black child 16 times. And then the officer says on tape, and I quote, I shot a little black child. I feel like a big man. Yeah, bitches. I did what the voices told me. Right. Uh, what's your question? Well, has the Black Lives Matter movement caused you to rethink your policies? Let me just say that my officers put their lives on the line every day of the year, as well as several days outside the year. The officer in that video has been placed on administrative duty for 30 days and has been offered full retirement and a party. We extend our condolences to the victim's family and or friends. It ain't over till it's over. Baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. Remember to recycle. Terry, your reaction? This is deplorable. Sheriff, don't you have to stand for re-election to office? I'm in a very close election right now, actually. Well, you've made me so mad, I'm going to go find your opponent's house and egg it. Oh, geez, don't do that. But I'll email his address. Uh, That's freedom of information, of course. And that's all for this. This has been this. A message from the state of Texas. Texas will no longer pay for an HIV program at Planned Parenthood, and some folks want to know why. Well, Texas wants America to be great again, and back when America was great, way more people had AIDS. Every day you were alive was a thrill. For the same reason, we're going to get rid of antipsychotic medicine. Schizophrenia used to be way more exciting. Oh, the things you'd see? We're also dropping DNA tests, so we won't find out someone on death row is innocent. We'll sleep better at night. And we're going to let people die faster from cancer. Because back when America was great, people knew their place. So join us here in Texas. Life is more valuable if there's less of it. Despite President Obama's promise that the U.S. will be the leader in bringing us a nuclear-free world, the Pentagon is building a new generation of smaller, smarter nuclear weapons. The final edition posed Department of Defense spokesperson Candy Kane, a new face around the Pentagon's corridors of power, a few questions. So, Candice... That's candy, dude. Oh, sorry. So, what exactly is the big idea behind this move? Right, okay. Reducing our nuclear stockpile, right? We're like surfing the cultural wave. Everything's smaller and smarter now. Phones, chips, Manny petty ladies, you name it. So, why not nukes? But how is adding to our nuclear arsenal reducing it? Because they're teeny tiny nukes, silly. A Cold War era warhead plus delivery system weighed like freaking tons? These babies are a fraction of that. Small, sleek, cool design, wouldn't look out of place on your kitchen counter. Some are small enough to go in my handbag. I I still don't understand how that's a reduction in nuclear weapons. Listen, if I'm the size of a bus and I lose like a freaking ton of weight, right? Like 100 to 120 pounds, I go down umpteen dress sizes, right? 
That's called reducing. I have reduced. Okay, that is reduction. But it's still adding to the total number of nuclear weapons the, the U.S. has. That's where the smart part comes in. These little beauties have humongous brains. They know exactly where to hit and who. So they only incinerate exactly the right amount of bad guys, instantly burning all the flesh off their bones, and they only reduce the immediate environment to a barren moonscape for centuries to come. That's like a huge improvement. How is it a huge improvement? Well, for one thing, there's no annoying village chiefs or family members to lodge complaints. Another huge improvement. Uh, oh yes, I guess complaints are really annoying. Look, in the bad old days of the Cold War, the estimated body counts from a single nuclear exchange were in the millions. Okay, totally uncool. We're reducing those to five, six figures tops. Surely this is just going to trigger another nuclear arms race. What's an arms race? Oh, it's a Cold War expression. It means like that I'm from the post Cold War generation. Okay, I don't get any of these old terms like arms race, throw weight, mega tonnage. They're so over. My generation thinks small, smart, cool, and so does our new Pentagon. Well, I'd say we're looking down the barrel of a new Cold War. Uh uh. This one'll be a cool war. Los Angeles is getting a football team at last. The Rams are returning to Southern California. The final edition asks the man on the street, what do you think? Let me go run home and pop up a big bowl of fucks to not give. This is good news for my pupusa business. That's what Inglewood needs, more black people. I have tickets to their first game in 2017, so I better get in my car and get on the freeway now. So what you're telling me is you will have a new stadium with many people crowded together. I have to make a phone call. Up until now, the only offensive lineman in L.A. was my Coke dealer. Well, they really appreciate the Rams. I, I particularly like the plot of their last game. I don't know. They seem a little too fat to be on TV. Did, did the Rams get a full season, or is it just like first 13 episodes? Well, you know they're going to get a lot of notes. Does it have to be football? Rapists, murderers, criminals. That's just the offensive line. <laughs> With luck, we'll be back with more of the Final Edition Radio Hour. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1915. It was the day that the people of Chicago stood up to demand an end to hunger and unemployment. Their stand began at a meeting at Bowen Hall, part of the Hall House Complex, founded by Nobel Prize winner Jane Addams. The number of unemployed had grown across the country due to an economic recession. A harsh winter had made the situation even more desperate in Chicago for thousands of out-of-work and homeless people. 900 people crowded into the hall for the meeting of the League of the Unemployed. More stood outside, straining to hear the speeches. One of the speakers was the fiery Lucy Parsons, the wife of one of the Haymarket martyrs. At the front of the hall hung a black banner emblazoned with one word in white letters, hunger. Those attending the meeting decided to march to City Hall to express their demand for work. Some in the crowd carried banners. One read, why starve in the midst of plenty? Another demanded, give us this day our daily bread. This banner was fittingly carried by Episcopal priest John Tucker, known affectionately as Friar Tuck. 1,500 people marched that day, and with them, they had a new anthem to sing as they marched. For the first time, Ralph Chaplin introduced his song, The Labor Anthem, Solidarity Forever. As the march made its way downtown, it was met by the Chicago police. Brandishing batons, the police dispersed the marchers. More than 20 were arrested, including Lucy Parsons and Friar Tuck. Now, more than a century later, Solidarity Forever is still sung when working people gather to stand up united. Solidarity Forever Solidarity Forever Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com Pull up your pants, we're back! It's the Final Edition Radio Hour! 
Do you love organic fire escape grown cauliflower and hand-tooled watches made from reclaimed Detroit factory parts? Then you're going to love Davis and Cousin, Bushwick's latest window box to table restaurant and watchery. I'm Davis. And I'm Davis's cousin. She really is my cousin. At Davis and Cousin Window Box to Table Restaurant and Watchery, our plates are vinyl records from 1948. Our chef is reclaimed from a dumpster in the Bronx. Our bread contains 100% vaginal yeast. Davis and Cousin, we only have seven chairs. And only two of them have legs. But we have plenty of hand-tooled watches. Because apparently nobody appreciates a hand-tooled watch in this day and age. Apparently. Our accordion player is also our sommelier. Our napkins are shards of sails from 18th century spice clippers. And our artisanal smoke-roasted fire escape-grown cauliflower won an award in Time Out Latvia. Respect, Latvia. Davison Cousin. We don't accept reservations. Or irony. Davison Cousin. Join us at Bushwick's latest window box to table restaurant and watchery. Or don't. Whatever. What she said. Hey, folks, welcome to Sports Bros Update. I'm your bro. And I'm your other bro. A big break in news. Johnny Menzel's been traded by the Cleveland Browns, and he's taken a big step down. Down from the Browns? Where'd he go? Oregon. Oregon doesn't even have a team. It's not a team. Manziel got traded to those militia guys at that bird sanctuary in the middle of nowhere. And boy, they were glad to get him. They needed a quarterback? Nah, that's what else they got in the trade. Six pounds of beef jerky and a case of Coors Light. Bottles? Cans. They got hosed. what did Cleveland get? And one of those don't tread on me flags and a cowboy hat lined with tinfoil. Hey, that's more than the Browns are expecting for Manziel. Yeah, they're happy in Cleveland. Well, that's it for Bro Sports Update, brought to you as always by Men's Sports Bros. We're out. Obama's really done it this time. He's issuing an executive order to make it harder for guns to get into the hands of the wrong people. Are you freaking kidding me? Why do you think I own a gun in the first place? To shoot cans off a fence? Hell no! I own a gun so I can shoot the bad guys who also own guns! The terrorists! The disgruntled workers! The mentally insane! The non-white racists! I need these people to own guns! I need everyone to own guns! Oh, the Obama administration, they just love taking away our right to protect ourselves. Hey, Obama! How am I gonna protect myself if there's no one to protect myself against? Do you know how many days a week I strap on my sidearm and walk past an elementary school playground just waiting for something bad to happen? I do it every goddamn day! And now, Obama wants to take away my chance to stop crazy lunatics from shooting up schools? Does that make any sense to you at all? Jesus! I just realized something. If I'm the only one left with a gun, it makes me look like the bad guy! I'm not the bad guy! The crazy people with guns are bad guys! And if there aren't any crazy people with guns, then I start getting a little crazy. And, and, and my trigger, my trigger finger, it, it starts to get a little itchy. And, 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 and I take my gun out, I take it out like so, and, and I twirl it around, and I, and I wave it in the air like I'm doing so. And, and, and then that, that cop over there starts thinking the that, 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 that he aims his gun at me, like he's doing right now, not knowing that, that I'm actually a good guy. And, and he starts yelling at me to, to put down the gun. Yeah. But but I won't. Why would I? And then he fires. Oh, oh, oh. And now, now I'm a hit. Oh, a good guy is being hit. A good guy is lying on the ground, bleeding to death, gasping for air. And you know whose fault it is. Freaking Obamas! Oh! 
Hello and welcome to Ghost Catchers. As you may have heard, the world-famous Playboy Mansion is up for sale, so we came here to investigate any paranormal activity. And boy, did we find it. This is the most ghostly activity we've ever encountered, and it's happening all the time. Listen to this eerie moaning. <gasps> And there's this weird creaking sound. And sometimes even the rattling of chains. We've even detected some sort of... Excuse me. Yikes! A ghost! No, Scooby. I'm a security guard. What the hell are you doing here? We're the ghost catchers, paranormal investigators. Is the Playboy Mansion haunted? Yes, by the ghost of James Conn's career. Now get the hell out of here. Wait, don't you hear that unearthly moaning and creaking? Oh, that's Mr. Hefner. He's 89, and he has an IV drip of Viagra. Oh, oh yes, Bambi. Or Barbie, whoever. Oh, yes. Oh, right. But what about the rattling chain? Oh, Bambi. I forgot my safe word. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, got it. We'll be on our way. This is Ghost Catchers, signing off. <sighs> Man, I'm not even going to ask what that is oozing from the walls. As part of our New Year's resolution to make some money out of this podcast, here at the final edition, we decided to offer a few select advertisers the opportunity to be on our show. So now, a word from our sponsor. Hey, do you love a pizza? But head out only comes in the slices. Try Luigi's delicious pizza bites from me, Luigi. It's a pizza like you never seen it before. Already cut up into little bits. Oh, now pizza is so easy. No more chewing. Just rip open the box, turn on the microwave, and a steamy pile of hot lava tomato and molten cheese can be on your mouth faster than you can say pizza bites. Pizza bites. Oh, scald your face off like a motherfucking boss. Pizza bites. It's This Week in Canada. Tonight's all-Canadian panel consists of Keanu Reeves, Nev Campbell, and Kiefer Sutherland's grandfather. Now, you can tell me what happened this week in Canada. Keanu Reeves, you got your hand up. Oh, sorry, dude. I just like holding my hand up. Can you tell me anything that happened in Canada this week? Uh, yeah. David Bowie passed away. You're pronouncing his name wrong. It's Bowie, not Bowie. In England, they pronounce Bowie, Bowie. In Canada, they pronounce Bowie, Bowie. I thought Canada was part of England. Well, it's not. And even if it was, David Bowie, Bowie, is not from Canada. The Canadian astronaut sang ground control to Major Tom in outer space. Yes, Kiefer Sutherland's grandfather. But outer space is not Canada. Dude. I live in Canadian outer space. I am not dude, eh? You're just like Bowie. You're the thin white dude. You mean I'm the thin white duke. You're not that thin. You're like the duke who can stand to lose a few. <laughs> um, could I say something? I wish you would, Nev Campbell. I was in four screen movies. They quoted the song Changes by David Bowie. I'm about to lose my patented Canadian reserve, eh? Oh, sorry, that wasn't Scream, that was The Breakfast Club. I can't remember which part of the teen zeitgeist I was in. Me too, dude. So, nobody knows anything that happened this week in Canada. Bernie Sanders is closing in on Hillary Clinton. How does that count as Canada? I'm the father of Canadian socialism, and Bernie is a democratic socialist. That'll have to do. 
folks come to Canada for the mind-numbing politeness and stay for the mispronounced British rock legends. They don't like it when I roll my R's. Here if I do it more. Next on, the final edition. Okay, I think you should do all of this. What? I'm just... You don't improvise, are you telling me? No, I can't improvise this. There's not enough substance to get my teeth into it. After these messages, the final edition radio hour will go to pi squared. We will be right back after this. (laughs) Yeah, do something French. Imagine drinking wine. Just did. Okay, these are incomprehensible. That's enough. We'll be back soon with more of the final edition Radio Hour! Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents It Sucks to be Right! With comedian Tara Devlin from RepublicanDirtyTricks.com and comedian Sherry D. Sutton. When did being poor become so such a stigma of shame? Where did that happen? That goes back centuries. Because the church intertwined with aristocracy would teach God loved the rich and they were meant to rule and they're, therefore there they are. Look at them. If you're poor, it's because you're... But you a, want it. You've got a poverty spirit. You were in an authoritarian Christian evangelical cult. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. I was told that in the cult every damn day. You have a poverty spirit and you're poor and you want to be poor. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm pretty sure. I don't want to be right. poor. And you hate me because I have money. That's what you used to be. And you hate me because I have money. I'm like, I think it's great. I think your farm is beautiful. Right. I don't hate you. Like, why do you assume I hate you? Like, is that the thing? Like, if you get to say, oh, you hate me. Well, that's because their disdain and their indifference gets to be, they get to ghost lighting somebody. You know that phrase, ghost lighting? Oh, gaslighting. Gaslighting, I mean, gaslighting, not ghost lighting, gaslighting somebody. When they, like, you you make them crazy. You just make them crazy. And I'm like, he's made us all, like, insane by saying things that you're just like, no. And then the no became, yeah, but you're in denial because you can't see it. This whole, notion that we're not in this together. And, and I really think that that's partly, I don't know, maybe you could tell me, being from the South, that, but it just seems to me that a lot of people, their real problem with things like universal health care and education for all is that they don't want to share with people who don't look like themselves. Let's put it that way. The majority of the reluctance or this anything that will lift any other segment of society up is due to racism. Buried in racial, you know, uh, things they'll never they'll never admit. But it's if you lift up the, the, the people out of poverty you're talking about black and white, but you are talking about black people yeah. that they not they need that systematic oppression. Yeah. It's sort of like it's that guy, what's his name? Vance Muse. He was it's from the early part of the uh, 20th century, they fought the labor movement and they started the right-to-work laws and states. And he, yeah, this, Georgia's a right-to-work state. Yeah. Why do they call it that? Because they're very good at language. They yeah. manipulate. It's the same thing of saying you have a poverty spirit. And you don't have a job, so it's your fault because you have a right to work. You're not exercising yeah. your Nobody's right. Nobody's stopping you from working. Right. And that, that is such masterful can, yeah. language. Well, that's, what they, that's all they have. I don't care how many hours you work. If you're working a, a job you're, and you're not making a living wage, no. you, know, you cannot get ahead in this world. If you can't educate yourself, if you are, you know, if you don't have any opportunities, I don't care how many hours you work. There's, there's this uh, a girl I went to college with, and she's quite conservative Christian girl, and she was working as a teacher for years and years and years, and she just had enough of the system. I mean, she... She's like, she was just done. So she quit her job, right? She was like, I cannot take it anymore. She's got her master's. She's like, I quit her job. And she's like, I'm out of this because education is, is yeah. a debacle, right? So she leaves it going, I'll just have to find something else. Well, she's not found anything else. And so she recently kind of reluctantly, I should find the post. I mean, some of these people have a point about <laughs> if you can't get around $15, like, how are you supposed oh. $50 an hour? Yeah, I do think we should have a minimum what? wage that you can live on. What? 
And then all of her conservative friends were like going, you've got to realize that that is going to break the business model. Oh that, my God. that will cripple the business model and that, that the people who provided these jobs are going to suffer because these people that don't have any skills. She said, I have a master's degree and I can't even get a job. Right. People take a look at me and go, I'm overqualified. Mm-hmm. They won't hire me. I can't get hired at, at Home Depot or Lowe's because I'm overqualified. I can't get uh, hired at McDonald's and they, and I don't have any money. She's like, I would take a job at a McDonald's if I could get. And she goes, how do we expect people to live on 6 yes. or $7 an hour? And it's so funny how these jerks come to the rescue of the system that is screwing everybody. They don't understand that the people who don't have money to spend, that are in poverty, affect the entire economy for everybody. This is Siri D. Sutton and Tara Devlin for It Sucks to Be Right. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And keep listening for more on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Stick together, we win. We will win. Pull up your pants, we're back! It's the Final Edition Radio Hour! Hi, I'm Tony Hendro. Welcome back to the Final Edition Radio Hour. I'm very honoured in this week's show to present the first of a three-part interview with Lewis Lapham, the legendary editor of Harper's Magazine and currently editor-in-chief of the extraordinary Lapham's Quarterly. You will not regret Googling Lapham's Quarterly and becoming a subscriber, for its intent is to sublimely subvert pretty much everything Google holds dear. I asked Lewis to share his thoughts on the subject of satire and its role, both currently and historically, in what we laughingly refer to as our democracy. Okay, so I'm speaking with Lewis Lapham, who is the editor-in-chief of Lapham's Quarterly. Is that correct? That's correct. And who was for almost 30 years the editor of Harper's Magazine, one of the nation's most respected organs of intelligent dissent, and possibly one of the most distinguished, if not the most distinguished, political and social essayist in the writing of the United States at the present time. Would you say those were accurate descriptors? I would say it was a little over the top, but I'm... uh... (laughs) Delighted with it. <laughs> well, indeed. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. But I'm also I'm also fascinated that given these extraordinary credentials, as his co-writer on his memoir, organized a tribute to George Carlin a year after his death, because we had talked about George Carlin in the past, I asked you to do one of the tributes. You did an extraordinary tribute to him, which was shorter and finer than any other tribute, even though there were tributes from stars like Ben Stiller, Whoopi Goldberg, Louis C.K., and many others. So I wanted to get the conversation going on what it was or what it is about George that prompted you to actually say things like, George Carlin is in the tradition of Ambrose Bierce, H.L. Mencken, Philip Wiley, Sinclair Lewis, Terry Southern, Richard Pryor, Lenny Bruce, Kurt Vonnegut, and Tom Paine. And the burden, I think, of your appreciation of George was that he stood up and, thinking out loud, proposed that he did not agree with the official version. Yes, I mean, he he did it very well. He did it in in, uh, language that, like Paine's and like Twain's, was easy to understand. It wasn't about himself. He was not trying to show off or in any way be smarter than anybody else in the room. And he wasn't doing it to vengefully or snarkily or ironically. He was doing it passionately and honestly and because it was something that these were sores in the body politic that he clearly saw. Twain used to think of satire as a kind of refining fire <laughs> and, uh, the, um, to burn away the hospitality tents of Kant under which uh, the society is blissfully and happily content to live most of the time. The Archibald MacLeish was himself a fine poet at one time a librarian of Congress. I can't remember the exact quote, but his point was that dissenting opinion was when somebody broke loose momentarily from the herd and managed to say what he or she himself thought had seen 
understood, guessed at, but was true to his own or her own observation. Twain played for laughs. Laughs, he thought, were the great healing, cauterizing bomb to heal the wounds that he knew everybody, man, woman, or child in his audience had come up against in the course of living in what was, in Twain's mind in the late 19th century, a truly brutal society. He once said that a society that is the sum of its vanity and greed is not a society at all, it is a state of war. And Carlin, I think, saw it somewhat the same way. And and he was, as was Twain, a, a, a humanist, an idealist, not a cynic, at least as I understood him. I didn't think Twain was a cynic. I certainly didn't think Payne was a cynic, and, and Vonnegut was not a cynic. Uh, Absolutely not, no. And, the, uh, and that was the strength of, of uh, Carlin's satire, and that's why people wanted to listen to and were hardened by what he said, I think. Not, not amused, uh, not condescending, right. but genuinely hardened. Try, and here's a man who's trying to you know, speak to the true terms of the contract <laughs> under which we happen to be living. Right. One of the things you said, actually, was that he sent his humor on a moral errand. Yes, he did. Which, which I think is a, a Twainism, is it not? Yes. Well, I, I also applied right. that to Twain. That's right. my phrase, that's not Twain's. Yeah. Excuse me. That's <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, that's a wonderful way to describe George. And another thing you said, which I think was very much in the front of, of George's mind at all times, was that he wanted to preserve his fellow American from becoming shriveled sheep. Right. That's a Twain that I, that's yeah. a phrase I borrowed from Twain. Shriveled sheep was a, one of his phrases. And the. Uh, There's another one too, I noticed in the autobiography, where he says, We are discreet sheep. Yeah. We, we look to see how, where the drove is going and then we follow the drove. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Most people do that. I mean, it's... Uh, right, but his point was more generous than simply demeaning people. It was that people actually know the truth privately, but they don't express it. Right. Because the drove doesn't express it. And to hear it expressed publicly is heartening. It makes you think, well, I'm not alone in, in this. Right, yeah. But it's threatening to those who want you to remain cheap. Yes, and I think that's... I mean, I, I know that Twain drew big audiences. The uh, How big were the audiences that Carlin attracted? Oh, they were sensible. I mean, he would play... His, his average was probably between 1,200 and 1,500 seats. Well, you see, that's gr- good. I mean, it's... Because we're not talking with, with about mass entertainment. I mean, I don't think satire works as mass entertainment because... It's too it, disturbing. It's, it's too yeah. threatening. yeah. People go to the movies or people go to the Broadway shows because they want to escape or they want to be lulled into some sort of complacent and content. You know, sheep, so the sheep may safely graze. Getting into bark, huh? And uh, you can't safely graze on right. the satire of Carlin right. or Twain or, Twain. or yeah. so on. Yes, I mean, actually, I think one of the one of the one of the most interesting things that you also said was that he performed live. I mean, he did his HBO yeah. specials, but he did them once every two years. And that right. was, he described that as an advertisement for himself. Right. Um, but what he really did was build a, build a vast audience, 1,200 or 1,500 at a time, of living, breathing human beings who were actually listening to his words. Right. Not listening yes. to a picture of his words. Yeah. And I think that is where, as you put it, he provided a counterpoint to think, the tragedy yeah. of the human predicament. And I think that's why satire is better suited to the stage or to the lecture. Twain used to do it live, too. As you know, he was a constant figure, a, a leading figure on the American lecture circuit in the late 19th century, which was a, a big and, I mean, ongoing means of education and entertainment everywhere in the country. And he also lectured in Australia, in India, in Germany, in England. In India, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. And, the, uh, and I think it needs a live audience. I, see, I think it's very hard to make satire work on television because it has to be cut to time. And, you, you know, you have, I don't know, whatever it is, 12, 8, 13 minutes, and then you cut to a car commercial or a beer commercial, which is the exact 
antithesis of humane expression. I mean, and the trouble with society as a whole is that most of our language is the language of advertising. It's the mm-hmm. language of the political yes. campaigns. Yes. It's the average. It's the fifteen thousand ads we see every day. You know, on billboards in the back of taxis, in magazines, you know, in elevators. <laughs> the language of advertising is really debilitating. <laughs> it's well, if the attitude is one of, basically, of pleading, it's asking you or trying to convince you to buy something. I mean, right, and, yes, and sure. it's, it's, yeah. that is the antithesis of satire, which is certainly not pleading with you, it's telling you the truth, right? Um, or truth-telling. It's giving you something. It's not trying to scrunch something out of you. So you would, but I think, when in, at the, actually, at the end of your, your, your wonderful analysis of his autobiography, you say this. We'll come back to Twain, I think, several times. But you say, since we're talking about this, you've made a great case for Twain not simply being a sort of folksy folklorist, right. which is the kind of niche that, as you said, the reviewers of his autobiography when it came out at the New York Times and the New Yorker chose to see him as an amiable after-dinner speaker, a man right. who told funny stories and yeah. smoked cigars and wore, wore a white suit, and that he was, in fact, far more... As one of his uh, executors put it, generous, intuitive, and sympathetic, but undiluted, merciless, and final as well. Right. So then you say, as your envoi to the review, you say, our contemporary brigade of satirists doesn't play with fire. It doesn't play with what Twain called painted fire, right? That's correct. Doesn't play with fire. The heavy calibers of Twain's humor have gone missing from our news and entertainment media because the audiences made for television don't look with favor upon the kind of jokes that cast doubt on the guarantee of happiness and the promise of redemption. Taught to believe that democracy is something quiet, orderly, and safe, a peaceful idea supportive of think tank viewings with alarm, and the keeping of pets as fragrant as Alan Greenspan and General David Petraeus, they prefer the safer forms of satire fit for privileged and frightened children. Twain was an adult. I think that's a pretty good end I to that piece. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever I wrote that three or four years ago, but right. I, I would still stand behind every word of that. So you wouldn't see this, this sort of supposed exemplars of modern satire like John Stewart and Stephen Colbert as satirists, or would you see them as something more diluted, or would you see them as not satirists at all? Well, I can't really answer that question because I have never paid much attention and I should have, I guess, to the Daily Show. And so I've only seen Stewart, you know, maybe five or ten times. And the same thing's true of Colbert. My sense of satire going weak in the knees is, is more along the lines of somebody like Bill Maher, who I've seen a couple of times, and simply see him as a front man for the established order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, really? The, I, I think that would be most irritating to Bill Maher. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know Bill Maher, but, so... I mean, he did make a good point, I think, when he said that you could say anything you wanted about the pilots that flew the planes into the trade towers, but you could not say that they were cowards. And for that, he was severely punished by the authorities. I think they took him off the air for yes, a couple of weeks. Yes, and, indeed. But, but he was right about that, and so maybe I'm doing him a disservice, too. I, but too often, when I see what passes for satire, I, I think it, it's a way of letting the audience gently off the hook. In other words, okay, we see through the screen of lies. We can distinguish appearance from reality. We know that we are governed by fools and led to our deaths by pompous ideologues along the lines of Dick Cheney or Paul Wolfowitz or, and so on. I mean, most of the establishment in, in, in Washington and many of the better-known columnists for the major newspapers. But it's an, but okay, all of us here, you know, watching Stewart or, or watching Colbert, watching Marr, okay, we're in on the joke and uh, good for us. And that's as far as it, it has to go. I guess that's heartening, but... Uh, there's not enough uh, edge in it to, to make it really hardening, I don't think. Well, I would say that one of the key points, even of what passes for the strongest satire on television, or even the strongest satire in the, in the comedy clubs, is that it's almost always about individual politicians or individuals on television in some way, pundits or writers. It's never about the system itself. 
it never calls into question the underlying principles of the system in exactly or exposes exactly what the system is, which, as you say, is just, this is not a democracy, it's a state of war. And it's even pretty obvious from the people strutting around the countryside with uh, pistols strapped to their hips that it is indeed a sort of slow motion civil war that we're in at the moment. But no one even John Stewart and Colbert will not come out and say things like that. Yes, they pick easy targets. Right. In other words, for example. In other words, to, they don't pick on Jamie Dimon, let's say, mm-hmm. and Chase Bank. Indeed. The final edition does. but <laughs> They don't pick on, you know, when, when Kissinger was in, in power, they don't pick on Kissinger. But it, it's not just calling him a war c- criminal. The more damaging way to approach Kissinger would be to compare him accurately to a hairdresser. In other words, here we have an American establishment that, that is, by and large, poorly educated, doesn't speak languages, knows very little of history, is easily fooled by somebody like you know, Kissinger, and who can present them with a bespoke set of opinions. Kissinger kind of pretends that he's essentially the avatar reborn incarnation of Metternich temporarily alone from the <laughs> the uh, right. Congress of Vienna. That's right, the and balance of power. He talks about the balance of power. And, and yeah. you really have to think of him in terms of fashion designer who's providing fashionable opinions for the, the gentry. <laughs> right. <laughs> the final edition Radio Hour will be back in seconds. I'm David Pakman, host of The David Pakman Show on the Progressive Voices channel. Check out this clip from my show. There was a news story brought to my attention about a bullet hole found at Bernie Sanders' campaign headquarters in Las Vegas, Nevada, on a day that Bernie Sanders was actually at that particular campaign headquarters. I thought, wow. Huge story. Clearly, this will be reported everywhere, but no, it was only reported and it continues to essentially be only reported by the Las Vegas Sun. Nobody else has really picked up on the story. So I assumed then, again, wrong to assume, it must not be true because surely corporate media would be interested in a story where a bullet hole is found at the campaign headquarters of one of the two leading Democratic presidential candidates. No. It doesn't appear to be because it is untrue. The Las Vegas Sun writes that a bullet hole was indeed discovered in a storefront window at the Bernie Sanders campaign headquarters in northwest Las Vegas over the weekend uh, or late last week. This is the same day that Bernie Sanders was on site, according to Metro Police. Officers responded just before noon to the campaign office on South Rainbow Boulevard and said it appears as though a bullet went through the window. They declined to comment on whether a shot had been fired. I guess conceivable, Lewis, that somebody threw the bullet through the window. Is that actually uh, a possibility? I don't know. Uh, So nobody heard a shot. Right. I guess what they mean is there's two possibilities, right? Either this is a bullet hole that has been here for a while and it's not linked to any action that recently happened, or somebody recently shot a bullet through the window. And that would have happened uh, presumably when no one was there because otherwise there would have been a scene. And Bernie Sanders did several interviews with a number of media outlets at the office that same day, including with the Las Vegas Sun. And then just a couple days ago, the Sanders campaign, or yesterday in fact, called the bullet, quote, an issue of serious concern, but they did not elaborate on the specifics of, of the situation. Why is this not being more widely reported? I mean, if there was a bullet hole found at Trump campaign headquarters in New Hampshire, corporate media would absolutely be all over that. Why is this not a story? Because it's Bernie. I don't know. I think that maybe maybe it's just not a story because uh, there's not much in terms of sensationalism here. I mean, nobody heard the shot. Right. Nobody saw anything. Who knows how long it's been there? Maybe it is kind of dull. I mean, I think it's still worth reporting on, though. Do you think it's likely that if the bullet hole was noticed, don't you think it's likely that at some point during the entire time Bernie has had a headquarters in Las Las Vegas, somebody would have already noticed it? This idea that the bullet hole may have been there for months already, maybe even before they moved in. It sounds hard to believe to me. 
that does seem unlikely. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of stuff like this that happens in Las Vegas, right? I mean, there's a lot of violence, uh, a lot of gun violence. Stray bullets? Stray bullets, sure. Uh, I don't know how many stray bullets there are on any given day. But um, is this out of the ordinary for Las Vegas? That I don't know. Uh, but certainly it's out of the ordinary for a presidential campaign. And it's even more bizarre that it has received essentially no media coverage on corporate media, full stop. You've been listening to part of the David Pakman Show on the Progressive Voices channel. For full audio and video podcasts, interviews, and more, go to davidpakman.com and check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash the David Pakman Show. And now, some more of the Final Edition Radio Hour. We at the Final Edition Radio Hour have our own YouTube video channel now. So for the enjoyment of our listeners, we're going to show some of our videos right here on the radio. Here we go. Wait, what what is that? Oh, that's not one of our Final Edition videos. That's something else. But, But what was that? It was a... It was a different video. Was that meat? It was lamb. The video's from Kazakhstan. Here, here's a final edition video. <laughs> nah, that's the same thing. What are they What are they doing to that guy? Nothing. Okay, here's a video from the final edition radio hour. Your baby is the most important person in your life. So ah, the pre-K jeweler sketch. With diamonds. Yeah, it makes a pretty good At video. Jewelers, yeah. We offer a fine so, of in that other video... That one guy's dead now, right? I mean, that was real. Search for The Final Edition on YouTube or go to youtube.com slash user slash The Final Edition 1 and just watch the funny videos. There are some others. Don't worry about those. This is Phone In Politics and I'm substitute host Murray Taylor. Uh, Our regular host, Gunther Magnuson, has been missing for five days, but there's probably nothing to worry about. This is just something he does. In the meantime, we're still talking about Jeb Bush and the question on everyone's mind, why are we still talking about Jeb Bush? My guest is Ron Brakeman from the New York Times. Ron, your take? Well, my son is six years old, and Jeb Bush's voice has an interesting effect on Uh, him. Sorry to jump in here, Ron. We have a call, and it might be Gunther. Hello, caller. You're on phone in politics. Uh, Yeah, hi. uh, Long-time listener. So Republicans are obviously rejecting the establishment candidates, and it's like it caught everybody by surprise even after what happened in 2012. So my question for you guys is, where do you think animals go when they die? Gunther, I recognize your voice. I'm not Gunther. I, I'm Laura from Mendocino. Gunther, where are you? Are you going to answer my question? Hi, Laura. Ron Brakeman from the New York Times here. Uh, as a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis said animals go to heaven when Ron, they die. Ron, please. We're not alone in the universe, Murray. Gunther, you need to tell us where you are. I'll take my answer off the air. Gunther? Uh, if I could just tie these two ideas together here. Uh, animals in heaven is a populist idea, like Trump. So there's that. We have another caller, Anne from Southgate. Hi. Hey, Ron, my son also has a reaction to Jeb Bush's voice. Whenever Governor Bush talks, my son curls up in a fetal ball and just points at the TV. That's exactly what Kenny does. And then he starts saying that nursery rhyme. Yeah, over and over until the other kids can't stand it. Ding, dong, bell, pussies in the well. Who put her in? Little Johnny Green. Ding dong bell, pussy's in the well. Who put her in? Little Johnny Green. We have another caller. Hi, you're on phone in politics? Yeah, I have a question about politics. Gunther. Spirits are watching us at all times. We know that for a dead certainty, but what we don't know is whether they're parallel beings Gunther? or dead animals. Gunther. I'd like to address this if I could. Ron, goddammit. A pro-Bush super PAC is actually shutting down, and there's a kind of sense right now that the super PACs may not be worth the money. Hmm. That is interesting. Thanks. Gunther, where are you? Next caller. You're on phone in politics. Question for Ron. When my son hears Marco Rubio, he levitates. Is that normal? Yes. One more call. This is phone in politics. I'm taking you with me, Murray. Someplace special. You're going to be glad. And that's it for phone in politics. If the pattern stays the same, Gunther will be back next week. Everything will be fine.
Hey, Bob, you see that new Star Wars movie yet? No! Spoiler alert! I haven't seen it! Don't tell me anything! Okay, fine. That's why I asked. Hey, uh, I tell you that I won a hundred bucks on the Seahawks-Vikings game? Yeah! Stop it! I got the game on DVR! Don't spoil it for me! Dude, that game was like a week ago. I haven't had time to catch up on things. Fine, I get it. So, uh, too bad about David Bowie, huh? Oh, great! You had to tell me! Dude, that's like the news! What am I supposed to do, like, never mention 9-11? Oh, no! What happened? Wait, no! Don't tell me! Oh, for Christ's sake. You know what? Since you last tuned in, Donald Trump is the leading candidate for president, Bill Cosby rapes people, and the Red Sox won three World Series. <laughs> yeah, right. Make up something I can believe. I'm out of here. You know what, Bob? I feel sorry for your wife. What? I'm married? Oh, thanks a lot! And now Jim Earl reads some jokes he wrote for Mark Marin that Mark never paid him for. It was four years ago, he's still angry, and these jokes were supposed to be delivered by a robot. I'd like to begin by saying Allah Akbar and Death to America. Unfortunately, I've never listened to the Mark Marin podcast. That's because I tend to rust after I vomit. I'd like to tell you a little something about myself. First, a robot may never hurt a human being. Second, a robot must always obey orders. And third, Mark Marin sucks. Sadly, I can never feel love for Mark Marin, not because I'm a robot, but because I hate him. Hey Mark, Van Gogh called, he wants his beard back. Hey Mark, I got a riddle for you. How do you say Mark Marin's an asshole backwards? Like this, Mark Marin's an asshole backwards. I don't want to say you're boring, but I'd rather watch a contestant on Jeopardy tell Alex Trebek a humorous story. Hey, America, I found out why Mark always talks about his cats. Because he is an asshole. Mark and I are very similar. I have artificial intelligence, and he has artificial personality. And now two heckler lines. Excuse me, madam. Would you mind closing your knees? The echo is throwing off my horizontal stabilizing system. Hey, pal, I don't come down to where you work and slap the servo sensor capacitor relay switch out of your mouth. I recently saw Mark do stand-up. I haven't seen something suck that hard since a Roomba attacked my servo toggle switch. The only person who talks more about himself is Manson, and frankly, Manson's got a better Conan chunk. If I may get serious here for a moment, all proceeds from tonight's show will go to help eradicate human-on-robot rape. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the show. Now, due to a design flaw, I will run amok and rip off your limb. Confirmation number? Just a sec. Okay, ready. Great. So it's A as in apple. A as in apple. T as in tango. T as in tango. C as in cunt. C as in cunt. F as in foxtrot. F as in foxtrot. Then B as in boy and C as in cunt. I'm sorry, this is a terrible line. Did you say B as in boy, then P as in punt, or B as in boy and C as in cunt? B as in boy, then C as in cunt. Right. I got a bit mixed up there. Not to worry. Look, I'll start again, shall I? That would be great. No problem. It's A as in apple. Yep. T as in... Tango. Exactly. As in, would you like to dance? Then C as in cunt, as in, get off my lawn, you hairy cunt. Got it. C as in cunt. F as in foxtrot. B as in... Boy. And C as in cunt. Cunt. Got it. Can I just say, you've been so helpful. Oh, thank you. That's so nice of you. Oh... Sorry, I have to put you on hold for just a second, okay? Sure. So, let's pick up where we left off. We've got to C as in cunt. Great, so it's C as in cunt, then C as in even more cunt. Just like my (laughs) sister-in-law. You callers are so funny. And then C as in cunt. Okay, so F as in foxtrot, B as in boy, C as in cunt, C as in cunt, C as in cunt, and C as in cunt. No, we were starting from the C as in cunt, the one after B as in boy. Oh, right. So just the three cunts. Exactly. (laughs) Just like my neighbors. (laughs) Callers are the best. 
Okay, nearly there now. It's one more C as in cunt. C as in cunt. And a C as in cunt. C as in cunt. Then Z as in Zulu, and that's it. Perfect. Shall I read it back to you? I'm all ears. How about just that last part? Perfect. C as in cunt. Then C as in cunt. C as in cunt. C as in cabbage. Only joking. Cunt. C as in cunt. And Z as in Zulu. Perfect. And just in case you need it, your group number is C. As in cunt. That's great. Well, thank you for calling the Vatican. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening to the Final Edition Radio Hour. The voices of the Final Edition are performed by Bruce Cherry, Jen Dodd, Jim Earl, Rob Gordon, Tony Hindra, Jeff Hendrick, Dan Vitale, Jeff Chrysler, Barry Lank, John Marshall, Abby Parker, Rachel Rauch, Steve Rosenfield, James Mount, Rob Miller, Kayla Merrill. Andrew Danish, Leslie Shapira, Anne Tuchel, and Darby Worley. Credit to our writers at the Final Edition Radio Hour, Bruce Cherry, Jen Dodd, Jim Earl, Rob Gordon, Tony Hindra, Jeff Hendrick, Abby Parker, Jeff Chrysler, John Marshall, Barry Lank, Leslie Shapira, Kurt Weitzman, Kate Knowles, Jeremy Rayburn, and Steve Rosenfield. The Final Edition is produced and directed by Tony Hindra and Jeff Chrysler. West Coast production by Barry Lank. Audio edited and engineered by Greg Russ and Andrew Hammond. The Final Edition Radio Hour is the property of the Final Edition LLC. Copyright 2015. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.